Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. We are picking up today in Revelation chapter 10, verses 1 through 11. When we looked at the uh, third vi- or the, the second vision, excuse me, the vision of the seven seals, we saw that the first six seals were open, and then there was an, a two-part interlude, a two-part break between the sixth seal and the seventh seal, and the seventh seal both pointed to the, the final judgment, but also introduced us to the next vision, the vision of the seven trumpets. We have a similar structure here. As we have looked at the first six trumpets, and then we're going to have a two-part break, a two-part interlude, chapters 10 and 11, as we look at God's work, Jesus' work, in light of the natural disaster and the the demonic torment that we saw earlier in chapters 8 and 9. And so with that in mind, we come to chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun and his leg were like fiery pillars, legs. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven say, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it. And he said, There will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told you must prophesy again about peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Let us pray. God of mystery, we thank you that you do not work according to our expectations and plans but you work in a way that we would act if we knew what you know. Show us the glory of your holy and sanctifying plan for the world, the church, and your children. May we be sanctified more and more by the reading and teaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. If I say the word mystery or the phrase, it's a mystery, what typically comes to mind? You may be like me and you hear the word mystery and you think of those TV shows. They're where a crime has been committed, and then, you know, whether it's Perry Mason or, or Matlock or, or Gibbs comes in and starts looking for clues, starts looking around trying to put the pieces of the puzzle together to try and figure out who it was that committed the crime so they could be brought to justice. Or some people hear the word mystery and, and, and think of things that we think can never be known, or at least can never be known based on the standard of knowledge that we have today. 
what and why are questions that oftentimes are mysteries as we seek to answer them. And sometimes we just have to fall back and say, well, it just can't be known. The biblical usage of the word mystery is different. While it does kind of carry those ideas with it, the element of clue finding and the admitting that we cannot fully know what God is thinking or doing, mystery is typically used in the New Testament to signal that the fulfillment of a prophecy is different than the Old Testament prophets or the, or the first century Jewish people would have expected those prophets to be fulfilled. Think of the servant songs of Isaiah, four passages that describe the Messiah. Isaiah 42, one through nine introduces the servant as one who brings healing, who gently comes to God's people before he brings justice to the nation. Isaiah 49, one through 13 describes the servant bringing restoration to God's people and manifesting the glory of God. Isaiah 50 verses 4 through 11 contrast Israel's sin with the servant's obedience. And then Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12 shows that this servant will do all of this by, by suffering. Fast forward to the New Testament and we see that Jesus fulfills all of these servant of the Lord expectations in a way that neither the prophets nor the religious leaders of his day could have expected Within the context of Jewish thought, the way Jesus came to secure both judgment on the enemies of God's people and salvation for God's people, the way Jesus did it was the last thing they would have expected. Today, John shows for us another part of the mystery of God explained to him by Jesus. The saints in heaven have asked under the opening of the fifth seal, how long until you vindicate us and show your justice upon those who have persecuted your church. And the great mystery of God that is revealed here in today's vision is that when the seventh trumpet blows, we will see his judgment come in a way that none of us could have expected. But before that, John reveals to us part of the mystery as he shows us the angel, the scroll, and as God recommissions John to proclaim the rest of the book of Revelation. First, the angel. This, this vision opens with the statement, then I saw a mighty angel coming down from heaven. John here has changed his perspective. If we remember in chapter four, he was taken up to the throne room of God so that he could see God seated on his throne and he could see the, the, the scroll in the hand of God that was taken up by the lion who is the lamb who was slain and raised again. But now John sees the angel descending. So John's point of view is shifted back to an earthly point of view. And, and it was in John or Revelation 5 that we were first introduced in the book of Revelation to a mighty angel. So we see a link between chapter 10 and chapter 5 as we see a mighty angel descending from heaven. Now the question is, who is this mighty angel? And John gives us plenty of clues here. First off, he is robed in a cloud. In Isaiah 6, God is covered with a cloud of smoke to hide his glory from Isaiah's sinful eyes. In Daniel 7, the one like a son of man is robed in God's, in a cloud of God's glory. And in Acts chapter 1, Jesus is carried away on a cloud and the disciples are told that he will re return in the same way. 
He's described as having a, a rainbow above his head. And in John chapter or Revelation chapter four, we saw God seated upon a throne and the light emanating from the throne and the, all the many colors of the rainbow. And we also remember back to Genesis chapter eight and nine after Noah, the ark had landed. God set his bow in the sky to rem- to remind humanity that God is faithful to not judge by flood again. So we see God's mercy in that as well. The angel also has a face that radiates brightness like the sun. In Exodus, Moses spent time with God on the mountain, receiving the law and the directions for for gathering the people and building the tabernacle. And when he came back, he had to hide his face because the reflected glory of God was so great that the people couldn't stand to be even in the derivative reflective glory of God in its presence. And in Revelation chapter one, John's encounter with Jesus was marked by a fire light, fire like light blazing from the eyes. The angel has legs and feet that blaze like fiery pillars. In Revelation one, Jesus was said to have legs and feet like a glowing hot bronze. And we see reference in these legs and feet as pillars of fire, even to Exodus and God's guiding and protecting of Israel as a pillar of fire. The angel roars like a lion. Joel 3, 16 and Amos 1, 2 speak of of the lion's roar from the mouth of God to announce judgment on the nations. You figured it out yet? You see where I'm going with this, who I'm describing here, this mighty angel? Yes, is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the fully human, fully divine servant of God that has secured salvation and is building his church. Think about this in the middle of the horrors of all the natural disaster that were that were revealed in the first four trumpets. And then the, the greater horrors of the demonic torment upon the nations that is unleashed in the fifth and the sixth trumpet. In, the, in light of all of this, John is given a vision once again of the resurrected Lord and Savior of your Savior, of my Savior. And it's a reminder of us that Jesus is central to the comfort and growth of the church on this earth. One of the dangers, I think, of of, of believing that Revelation is describing a period of history that will occur sometime in the future when the church is absent is the temptation to forget that Jesus is to be the focus of all that the church is and does. We are a people redeemed and gathered by the word and work of Jesus. We are a church being built by Jesus We are a church being protected by Jesus. We are a people comforted in the midst of trial by the good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep and who took that life back up again. In the middle of the book of Lamentations, the grief of the tormentor is, 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 is comforted because he declares that God's mercies are new every morning. When you are in the depth of grief, the sun should remind you that Jesus is seated upon his throne, that he is full of glory, that he has gathered you together as a people. He should be your main focus in times of joy, in times of grief, because of what he has done for you. And the reminder should be there, especially in the times of grief, that as Paul says, even the most painful of circumstances amount to nothing compared to the glory that is ours because of Jesus I've said before that the point of the book of Revelation is that God wins. 
And while that's true, I'm learning as I go through that, that that it's so much more than that. The fuller explanation is that the point of the book of Revelation is found in this passage and is found in other passages throughout the book of Revelation. It's actually also repeated at the end of the next chapter in verse 16. As the seventh trumpet blows, verse 15, excuse me, as the seventh trumpet blows, the voices in heaven lift this phrase in praise. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. We we sing it at Christmas. It's actually a second coming song. Our Lord reigns. That is the point of the book of Revelation. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. They will try. They will expend all of their energy. They will expend all of their hatred for God's gospel. They will expend all of their violence, all of their torment upon the church. But our God reigns. We'll see a little bit later on as we go through the book of Revelation that as part of this 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 torment, this destruction that the beast seeks to bring upon the church, that a beast will raise up out of the sea, a beast will raise up out of the land to bring pain to the church. And yet where is Jesus standing in this chapter? He has his right foot firmly planted in the sea, his left foot firmly planted in the land. In Joshua 10, as as this conglomerate of nations is coming upon the the people of Israel, the the, the kings of this nation, as they see they are losing the battle, go and hide in the cave. And Joshua says, seal them up in the cave, guard them until the battle is over. And when the battle is over, the, 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 the kings are brought out and Joshua tells the leaders of the tribes of Israel, stand on their necks to show that God has used us to conquer these kings. The beast that comes from the sea, Christ's right foot is already standing upon its neck. The beast that comes from the land, his left foot is already standing upon his neck. Jesus has conquered. That is the message in the midst of the horrors and the difficulties of living in this world. The message is turn your eyes to Jesus for he has conquered all things. All of the torments that you suffer, all of the torments that the church suffers have already been conquered by the work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, upon the cross. Take hope and strength, dear friends. Jesus stands upon the sea and the land. He has conquered and he is building his church. Next, we see that the angel is holding a little scroll. And we could... We could go for hours, we won't, but we could go for hours talking about what this scroll is. Some say that it's the book of life, the Lamb's book of life that shows up later on, but that doesn't quite fit because John wouldn't be given access to eat the Lamb's book of life. Some say that it's the gospel, and some say that it's the scroll that we saw in Revelation chapter 5. And, and I want to say that it's, it's a combination of the gospel and part of the scroll that we saw in Revelation chapter 5. Remember in Revelation chapter 5, God is seated upon a throne. And in his right hand, there's a scroll with seven seals on it that's written on the front and on the back. And we talked about that being God's sovereign plan for the church and for history between the ascension of Christ and his return at the end of history. 
Jesus opened that seal, those seals, and began to work out that history. But John is given a little scroll that is only part of that plan that he has revealed and is called and will be recommissioned to reveal here in a few moments. Uh, we see this a little bit in this interaction between the, the thunders. You know, the, 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 lion, the, the angel roars like a lion in judgment upon the nations. And as he does this, these seven thunders speak. Now, seven is an important uh, number in the book of Revelation. We have seven seals. We have seven trumpets. We have seven bowls. We have seven plagues. We have seven visions. We have a whole lot of sevens that show up. So this should clue us in that this is something different than, than just seven strikes of lightning followed by peals of thunder. In addition to that, the thunder speaks. Many commentators believe that, that this is another vision that John gets, a vision of what God is going to do next in the history of the church, or not next, but in addition to the other things that he has revealed for him. But notice what John is told here. Seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. You know, we don't need to know everything that God knows. We can't know everything that God knows first and foremost. Number one, he has infinite knowledge and we are finite human beings. Many of you, many of me included, all of me included, since the advent of cell phones, can't remember phone numbers. I used to be able to rattle off 20 or 30 phone numbers. If you asked me if I was going to call so-and-so, I'd walk over to the phone and dial it. I can barely remember my own now. I, I can't handle phone numbers, much less the infinite plan of God, sovereign plan of God for all of, South, all of human history. And so what John receives is a little bit of the history that is going to happen. I mean, we, we have some pretty clear pictures in the book of Revelation of what God is doing, what the enemy is trying to do in light of what God is doing and the fact that Jesus is one, but we don't have exhaustive information. John did not have exhaustive information. And, and this is a reminder to us that we are to remain humble before God. It was, it was an illustration mentioned in, in Sunday school today that we're like flies on the, on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. All we can see is that little bit of color that we're standing on. If we could pull back and had God's perspective on everything, we could see the full glorious picture. But we can't and we don't. And so we rest in what is revealed for us. That God is establishing his church, that the enemy hates that and is doing everything he can to stand against it. And yet Jesus, through the cross, has defeated all of his and our enemies. And we need to come to this knowledge humbly, understanding that God will work it out in his time. We will come closer to understanding it when he does, but when Jesus returns, we will have infinite eternity to try to piece together something we'll never understand other than it brought God immense glory. We've seen the angel, we've seen the scroll, and then John is given the scroll and recommissioned to write the rest of the book. John is told to approach the angel, the voice from heaven, likely God speaking of his throne, says, go take the scroll that lies in the open hand of the angel. Once again, another link back to uh, Revelation 4 and 5. It, 
I find it it's really interesting. You know, John oftentimes pulls imagery from the Old Testament to try to describe the indescribable. He also pulls uh, imagery from what he's already written, what he's already seen to continue to describe the indescribable. And he does this under the, the inspiration of God and the Holy Spirit. But he's told to take the scroll and he's told to eat it. Now, what does it mean to eat the scroll? If we go back to our, our scripture reading from earlier, Ezekiel saw a scroll in the hand of an angel. He ate it and then God said, take the message that you just ate that was sweet to you and go proclaim it to the people. It's this idea of taking in the word that God has given to us to proclaim, taking it in in such a way that it just fills us and becomes part of us. We, we ingest food. Sometime today, you're going to sit down to a meal and, and that meal is there more than just to taste good as something to do to pass a few minutes of your time. Your body needs energy. Your body needs nutrients. Your body needs the things that it absorbs from the food. Our soul needs things as well that we absorb through taking in the word of God, eating it as you were, as you as you will, by studying it, by by meditating on it, by just making it part of you, ingesting the word. Now, you know, I do not recommend that you go home and just start peeling pages and, and taking them, eating them. It's probably not a good thing with all the chemicals and stuff on the paper. But I do encourage you study, meditate, Learn, dig deeply into the word so that you can find the message that God has for you and God has for others. So John is told to eat the scroll and then with the understanding like Ezekiel that he will proclaim the rest of what he has there. But he's told that the scroll will be bitter on his stomach then sweet in his mouth. And then as he ingests it, he finds that it is truly sweet to his mouth and bitter to his stomach. A little bit of poetry there as he kind of crafts that that way. Why is it sweet? Why is it bitter? Well, it's sweet because what he has is the message of the church's vindication and glorification through the gospel and the work of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, how sweet it is to know that in spite of my sin, in spite of my rebellion, in spite of your sin and in spite of your rebellion, Jesus died for you. Jesus stood between you and God, taking the punishment for your sin so that you could have mercy, so that you could have grace, so that not only will God not judge you by the rising waters, God will not judge you at all for your sin. How sweet it is to know that and how sweet it is also to know that as God builds its church, his church and as the world seeks under the under the direction of the enemy, as the world seeks to destroy that church that we have a glorious future ahead of us where we will see God's glory in its fullness. No more tears, no more death, no more dying. Our scars and our hurts will be put in the perspective of the glory of God and we will appreciate them so much. How sweet that message is. But it's also a bitter message because as we go through this, we will continue to see that the church suffers. We'll see God's witnesses to the nations of the gospel will be destroyed and left for dead in the streets. We will see as we read throughout history and even today, churches that are attacked, Christians that are jailed and killed simply because they refuse to recant that Jesus Christ is Lord. And it's also bitter, as we saw last week at the end, 
the rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. And they will fall under judgment for their idolatry, for their sin. Every now and then, I read in the newspaper a couple months ago that a friend of mine that I met downtown that asked me questions that that was curious about the gospel, but never convinced, died. I wept. It was a bitterness to my soul to know that my friend no longer had any hope. We are called to ingest the word. We are called to taste its sweetness and to proclaim that sweetness to the world, to our friends, to our family. But there is the bitterness there that we will suffer for it. And others will suffer as well. So the angel has conquered. Our Lord and Savior stands as conqueror upon the sea and upon the land. God's plan is set. It is set in motion. Nothing can stop it. And he is sovereign over all things. We are told, our history tells us that Tertullian, Tertullian, an early father of the church, said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. God uses the bitterness of suffering to work out the sweetness of his plan here on earth. And as you and I suffer the bitterness, we can have the sweetness of knowing that since Jesus has conquered all sources of suffering and persecution for the church, we can and must take comfort when suffering comes. Let us pray. God and Father above, we do thank you for these words of blessing. We thank you that our Lord and Savior stands upon this earth as conqueror and that nothing that happens can happen outside of his and your will. Comfort us in that. Strengthen us in that and help us to rest in the glory that is ours, the sweetness of the gospel as we live out the bitterness of this life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you, take, as you go this week to take the sweetness of the little scroll, the sweetness of God's good news to your work, to your family, to your world, take this blessing. To those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. And we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.